Welcome to the LBC podcast where we explore Christian theology and practice for the building up of God's family. My name is Josh White. I am the adult ministries director at LBC. And I'm Chris Moore, the children's ministry director at LBC. So today we have Pastor Eric and Kristen Sabalka joining us to talk about maintaining unity in a divided culture. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so this is actually Kristen's first time on the podcast. So she was on staff at LBC for a few years and has attended LBC for about six years. And she led our women's Bible study last year. So we're super excited to have her here and uh, just hear her input on this important subject. So before we dive in, we like to ask kind of some fun questions just to kind of get the ball rolling. So uh, one thing we thought of was, Eric, you mentioned in your sermon this last Sunday that you rewatched a football recent a football game recently. Was, um, was that something that you've been doing um, a lot of? Yes, it is. I, uh, I turned on ESPN and I saw Korean baseball and I was like, I can't do it. So I started going through and I found another 2004 USC versus UCLA and it's Reggie Bush in his prime. I still get excited. I still cheer. It's still amazing. I just couldn't get into uh, Korean baseball with the cardboard cutouts in the stands. So I'm rewatching it and I'm loving it. So, and I have that comfort of knowing they win. So, it's yeah, nice. yeah, it's it is kind of nice when you know what happens. So, awesome. That's really uh, that's really exciting. I know I've been watching a lot of I've been rewatching a lot of skateboarding competitions and stuff like that. And even though I know right. the ending, it's it's still a lot of fun. Um, what about you, Kristen? What's uh, maybe one thing fun thing that you've been doing with your family during this time? I'd be more likely to watch Korean baseball than that stuff. But, you know, um, like any good Bakersfield family, the swimming pool is currently saving our lives. I have four kids, six and a half, four, two and a half, and three months old. So it means my kids are like pretty much most of the time seeing the like fixing snacks, cleaning up, enforcing first grade homeschool version of mom. But I really love swimming with my kids. I really do. So I kind of become the like jump off the diving board, game for anything, play mermaids, sea monsters, whatever goes. Um, And it brings out the play in me. And I really get to enjoy my kids. So I think it might be their happiest memory of me. Their other memories, they might land them in therapy, but this is their happiest swimming memory with me. That's awesome. I'm sure they will remember that for a super long time and love those memories. Yeah. All right, guys. So uh, as we mentioned before, the topic for today is maintaining unity in a divided culture. And unity in the church is something that God deeply cares about. And that's really why the scriptures address that issue so abundantly. And so our first question um, for today to kind of clarify some things and, and define, you know, some of the problems that we see currently is um, how have recent events created division within the church? Yeah, so it's, I mean, I know I'm not that old, but this is unlike anything I've, I've ever seen. 
uh, normally people get in a debate, uh, they're on two different sides. It's, you know, like something like global warming and uh, it's not really uh, personal. You know what I mean? It yeah. doesn't have big consequences to you as an individual. Well, this particular crisis deeply affects people because it's either affecting their ability to work and make money or it's affecting their health. Uh, and so you have two people on polar opposites, but they're deeply attached to it because it impacts them in a big way. And so I think the first part of understanding this is that it is deeply personal because people are struggling to pay bills. People are struggling to put food on the table. Other people, uh, maybe more high at risk, have bad health conditions, are afraid to leave their houses, and they both have legitimate fears. Uh, and the, the harder part too is that you're looking at the same numbers and drawing two different conclusions. And like for me, that's hard because two plus two is four, and it doesn't matter if it's from Chinese, Japanese, if it's said by a Republican or a Democrat, two plus two is four. Uh, but the division is about the interpretation of the numbers, you know, your kind of risk tolerance and what you're willing to risk. And that's really hard because that really is a personal decision, you know, and as I've gotten older, I'll take less risk because I want to make sure I can play with my kids. I won't go jump off that rock and I won't do something crazy that I would have done when I was 19, 18, didn't have a family. So it's, really trying to realize that everyone is looking at this through a different lens, but it's still valid. If that makes sense. Cause it's extremely personal and each one has to kind of look at their circumstances and it's hard though. And it's, it's hard to say, Hey, look, let's validate both positions and let's love people in that place. And because it's so personal, I think that's when the stones start getting thrown and people feel like you're trying to take away their, right to earn money or right to stay healthy. So I think that's kind of the root of the division is what I would say. Yeah, I agree. Not just to build Eric up because he's right here with us, but I think that you spoke really clearly on the divisions during your sermon on Sunday. I think that this pandemic, like anything that it's something that threatens our personal sense of physical safety and financial security. And I think that that can easily narrow our focus from a collective focus, looking at the greater good to a more narrow focus of what we need and what feels most important for us. And when it comes to global culture, I think these divisions are coming out through our views on healthcare, economy, education. You know, I could easily, for instance, get hung up on focusing on my children's public education for next fall. And I could feel really strongly about that and disregard the perspectives of other families or even of policymakers because I feel strongly about protecting the well-being of my own children. And I can totally see how the same thing can be true with church, that we feel our sense of safety and security spiritually being threatened. And I think that's scary. I think it's, we have never done it quite like this before. And so it's easy to begin to narrow our focus on the things, again, that matter to us. And our security blanket when it comes to church is, want, is to want to do the things 
do things just the way we've always done them. Whether it's gather in the same room, have the same singing that we've always had, the same children's programming, the same courtyard fellowship, whatever it is that might feel most val valuable to me, I wanna do it the way I've always done it. And so that can feel like the only way that we know how to meet with God or connect with our church community. And so it's really easy to let our disappointments rule us. So I think, and when anything that rules us, I think that that means that that's gonna be the thing that we could let divide us. And so I think it's so important, again, to think collectively, to think about the greater good and to pray for the church's greater good in humility in order to find Jesus's way forward. Well said. Yeah. Very well said. That's good, Kristen. And I, and I think about unity, and I know we've talked about this at church a lot, but I don't think um, in the church there's going to be a lack of disagreement because we're all human and we're going to have opinions, but the unity piece is important. And when we look at like Facebook, especially, um, we see what the, the harm that can happen when people don't disagree uh, well. Um, but particularly for the church, what are the dangers of disagreeing poorly as a body of Christ? My knee-jerk first reaction, my first concern comes right out of John 13, 35. It's familiar, I think, to a lot of us. Jesus says, by, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Jesus shares this with his disciples right before he goes to the cross knowing that obviously they're about to face a huge crisis, a crisis of faith, a crisis of community. And when Jesus dies, he knows when he's coming to die that the disciples are gonna feel afraid. And again, that comes right back to that same sense when we feel afraid, it narrows our focus from that collective to the individual. And that can divide us the, it could have divided the disciples. It could cause them to flee and spread and um, lose sight of their mission. Or they could look out for one another. They could serve each other. And they could become a family of disciples committed to Jesus no matter what. And that would be that clear, hope-filled witness to the world. And I think the same is true for us. Though our crisis is not as severe as watching our savior die on the cross um, mm -hmm. when crisis hits i think it's so important that we seek to love each other listen to each other for the sake of our fellow disciples who are our brothers and sisters and though these relationships that we have at church with our brothers and sisters in the family of god though they're eternal they can still be damaged on this side of heaven and they're still precious and valuable. And I think that those relationships are worth protecting. Good point, Kristen. Eric. Yeah. So uh, to build on that, uh, I have, I think my deepest concern is we'll have a lot, but first I think there's two different audiences uh, and we have to think of it that way. Uh, you have a non-Christian audience that's watching the, Christian audience respond to a crisis and if we look just like them why would they want a relationship with Jesus um, because obviously our relationship with Jesus hasn't made us calmer 
nicer, more gentle. It's made us just as angry and belligerent as them. So why would they want to, you know, meet Jesus? Or it leaves a bad taste in Christianity in their mouths. So I think uh, that's a real danger of disagreeing poorly is that we might be the only, you know, kind of picture of Jesus they might have in their life. They might not have any Christian friends, uh, but we're that one. And when that one just comes off really angry and aggressive, like, ooh, you know, if I want to, if I want to feel terrible, I'll go to work. I don't need to go to church. And so that's one danger. I think the other is it, it's similar, but if non-Christians see Christians throwing rocks at each other, it's like, why would I want to go get in the middle of that mess instead of non-Christians seeing Christians take care of each other, listen to each other, uh, disagree with each other, but still be kind and gracious towards each other uh, to see a support system, you know, as someone's really struggling, they're seeing other people come alongside them, pray for them, be there, take meals, share. And so I, I think when, before you post something or say something, the potential of disagreeing poorly has to be looked at through the bigger picture. What does this communicate about Jesus? How does this reflect how I feel about Jesus? And even if it's just a rant I need to get out, is that how people are going to see it? And so kind of step back and look at the bigger picture. Um, be slow to respond, right? Quick to listen. Try to understand the other side. Process it. Sit on it. Run it by someone else. And then see if you still need to say it. And can you say it in the nicest, kindest way? Because we're not saying you're not allowed to disagree. We're saying, how can we do it in a way that doesn't make Jesus look terrible and doesn't make Christianity look worthless and doesn't make Christianity look like, uh, you know, a frat house or just any other job, that there's something uniquely different as a Christian. And that's going to be in our behavior and our response. So I think the danger is that Christ gets represented poorly. And, and that's a big danger we should all be concerned about. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing that. That's, you guys both pointed out some, um, some very real uh, dangers in disagreeing uh, poorly. And a lot of, a lot of it has to do with just, um, you know, who are we really thinking about as we communicate um, how we feel about this, this situation? And are we most concerned with, with how Christ ultimately is going to be um, represented? Or am I mostly concerned about, you know, my own thoughts and my own feelings, you know? And so to get a little bit more practical, maybe a, a next question would be, um, in light of wanting to represent Christ well, and yet knowing that there's still going to be disagreements between Christians, how can I approach a conversation with a Christian brother or sister if we disagree? Yeah, so I think the first thing we have to, to realize is our ideas can't be our identity. And what I mean by that is the way this kind of society works is if we disagree, we can't be friends. So you have to support everything I think and you, you, and I support everything you think. Um, but we really don't. 
so we really have this kind of inner conflict we never talk about, but we don't want to say anything because we want to stay friends. And so the first thing is making sure that we're not attached to our ideas so much that when someone disagrees with our ideas, we take it personal, right? Because if you think about it, we should be able to disagree with an idea, but love the person, right? Because the idea is not the person and the person is not the idea. For instance, if you have a Republican view and someone, you know, wants to argue a view about a Republican decision, that doesn't mean you're an idiot because they disagreed with what a Republican party did. If they say you're an idiot, then they called you an idiot. But you see how sometimes people will take disagreeing with my position and link it to you're devaluing me. And so uh, in order to protect yourself, you have to first realize, okay, if I'm going to go into this conversation, they're going to say things against what I think. And that doesn't mean my value gets diminished. That means the idea gets diminished, right? The second part is when you're talking to them, you got to attack the idea, not the person. It's one thing to say, I think that policy uh, doesn't make sense. That's different than saying any idiot who supports that, now you're, now you're attacking their intelligence, right? No decent person would believe that. Now you're attacking their character. So when you attack character and you attack the intelligence, uh, you're going to turn into a fight versus saying, you know, I don't understand how that's profitable, how that's beneficial. I don't see how that's good. And you can disagree about seeing good in something or not seeing good in something without having to say, you're terrible, you're dumb, you're not smart. You know, so getting away from those types of ideas and rules, you know, even in a moral argument when, when you're trying to talk, instead of saying, you're so dumb, I can't believe you did that, saying, hey, the Bible calls that sin. Um, but I don't think less of you because you did that. I still love you. I'm still with you. But we're going to acknowledge that that's bad, right? And just because that's bad doesn't mean I love you less. So if you can separate the two out and try to keep the ideas, the ideas, and the person, the person, and acknowledge that you love the person, but you disagree with the idea, I think that's the beginning uh, of doing that. And so the, the last part I would say is just make sure you don't put words in other people's mouths. We live in such a, what is it called, a post-fact, right, world. So when you say a word, the other person might not necessarily agree about what that word means. So you have to ask, when you said this, did you mean that? Otherwise, people will say, you're putting words in my mouth. Like, I'm not putting words in your mouth. You said this. That means that. And they're like, I don't mean that. I mean this when I say this. Right. And so you can get really mad off of what I would say is a miscommunication. So clarify, is this what you're saying? Oh, okay. You're, you didn't mean that. See, and that can save a lot of frustration right there. So attack the idea, not the person, ask clarifying questions and go into it knowing that they're, you're not attached to your idea. You're attached to Jesus. Your identity is a Christian, not a Republican, not an American, not an ethnicity. Your identity is a Christian. Everything else is ideas. So Absolutely. That's, that's how I would do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that 
most of my thoughts on this build right off of that. Um, when it comes to unity and unifying conversation, when keeping that the goal, I think that honest conversation about conflict or disagreement can be a life changer. Granted, I am a confronter naturally. And so I, for me, I can do this. And I have a lot of compassion on the fact that if you're listening and you are an avoider, that this feels way harder. So for me, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten to a place of getting angry or jumping to a conclusion and assuming the worst about a sister or brother in Christ. It's easy to do for any of us. But the times when I sit down and say, okay, can I meet you for coffee, learn more and come out, what happens is that I come out with a greater affection and understanding for my sister or brother. And I believe that understanding grows family affection. I could say that over and over and over again, because I think understanding is the game changer. So here's a couple of my hard earned lessons relating to when we disagree. First of all, I, as practical as it is, and I'm kind of more of a practical thinker, but as practical as it is, we, I believe, need to be going to each other one-on-one -on -one and going to each other personally. I, I hope and pray that we would continue to become a people and even a church who avoid chatter, just endless wondering about people, that mind-spinning thing, and gossip. This spreads dissension, it, and it creates polarized groups where there are groups of friends who are believing, who are kind of banding together around an idea and then believing the worst about another group of friends or another person. And I think that that's so dangerous when it comes to seeking unity in the church. I had an issue recently brought to me where someone was concerned about a non-essential in someone else's faith. And as a leader, I'm trying to really gently, slowly begin to ask questions of, have you sat down for coffee with that person? Before, maybe even before they get into it with me, whether it's a friend or another person in ministry with me, just saying, hey, have you gone to this person? Have you talked with this person one-on-one? -on -one? Or because sometimes, sorry to break it to you gentlemen, um, the chatter is about pastors or staff what? being able to say, I know, shocking, right? Isn't no. it? <laughs> but being able to say, hey, have you thought of asking them directly? And, and then you guys get the challenge of being able to be in those conversations. But I think this is going to be a time where we as church members have questions. And there are going to be things that, are, that go differently than we imagined. And being able to engage each other one-on-one, -on -one, I believe, will work toward the unity of the church in a really positive way. And then the other thing that comes up for me is when it comes to strong opinions, I think it is wise and most compassionate, if that's our goal. I'm kind of a, I'm, compassion's important to me. When it comes to strong opinions, I think that we need to assume that most times when people share a really, really strong opinion, it doesn't come out of nowhere. There's a story behind it. 
In fact, if a person has a loud or hardly set determined opinion, I think we should usually see it as a flashing green light, that there's something deeper going on in them or that there's a history to this strong opinion that they're holding. So I came up with a couple just examples of what I could see happening in the future um, that are just short, small examples that might cause us to think more deeply about how we can engage people. So say someone were to say, or say you knew someone who really, really was against wearing masks. And that was something they were vocal about on social media, vocal about among friends. We're hearing about it a lot. I am hoping that I would be the kind of person who would be willing to engage and say, hey, I've kind of heard you say a couple times that you feel really strongly about your right to wear a mask or not wear a mask. Will you help me to understand your viewpoint on that? And I'm assuming that if someone is declaring that boldly and loudly and consistently, that I might hear a story behind that. Maybe they had a sick relative as a kid where they had to wear a mask around them and that feels traumatizing or offensive or brings up hard memories. Or maybe they really value smiles and it feels like it's hard to connect with people without yeah. seeing their smile. And so taking that step back and being able to hear, that grows compassion, that grows understanding in me and it, it lets my guard down toward that person. Or another example of, you know, we hear this back and forth right now of online church versus gathering in person. And maybe we hear someone say that they've actually preferred online church. And I could imagine for me as an extrovert going to someone and saying, okay, help me to understand this. Because as an extrovert, I miss church every Sunday morning. So help me to understand what is it that's particularly beneficial for you about online church. And by posing good questions, I think we get the opportunity to hear people's stories, to unify around these stories that maybe this person feels intimidated every time they come to church. Maybe they've had social anxiety for their 20 years of church attendance, and now yeah. they have a safe place to sit and listen to a sermon. So we just don't know what's going on in people's hearts and minds. So instead of building up these defenses, I think this is a time where I would hope and pray that we can challenge each other to ask really good questions and to believe that we're all on the same team, working toward building God's church for his glory and that we can stand together in that. Great response. Yeah, that's good. And I, I know for me, I'm the non-confrontational guy. So, um, but I, I think when you ask questions, it, it takes the, uh, you're not in attack mode. Even if you feel threatened by someone's opinion, you're not in attack mode by just asking questions. And so I think that's a healthy way. Just help me understand where you're coming from and probably don't even have to have a response, but just, just talk to me, you know? And I think that even softens them up. Um, so I think that's great. Asking good questions is great. Um, so let's say we've approached the situation biblically, we've approached a person, we've asked good questions, um, and we still disagree on some important issues. Uh, what, what do we do at that point? That's really hard. 
that's a hard spot and it can leave us feeling like there's nowhere to go and i think there is a way forward i believe there always is a way forward in god's church and ultimately to me i think unity within the church is characterized by the safe ability to freely disagree which has become harder in our culture that's not supported in our culture but that we can freely disagree about non-essentials while maintaining unbroken fellowship and the safety that we will continue to mutually hold each other in a high esteem so unbroken fellowship and respect are things that i i think can be that soft landing for continuing to disagree this means i think that we end up accepting that it is about the attitude of our own hearts at that point i think it's when god often goes to work on the attitude of our own hearts i think of first peter i'm just going to read a part of it here in first peter which is a book about christians in crisis um, peter instructs believers to have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind to not repay evil for evil reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless and when i hear that those are all things that i get to do that's not me asking somebody else to change but that's an opportunity for me to ask god to work in my heart so that i can be humble before my brothers and sisters as challenging as that is if we've talked to them if we've listened and understand their testimony and we still disagree then i think that's our time to grow i think that's our time to pray that we would find a way to connect with that person that god might miraculously give us affections for that person um, find something that we mutually enjoy and that maybe that's the thing we talk about every time for three months before conversation gets a little bit easier between us but finding those ways that we can connect and then i hope and pray that through the holy spirit that as our attitudes change and as we let it begin with us that as a church we would just become more tolerant of the non-essentials in each other so that we can be totally unified and loving in the essentials again i think that's where the world will see that we are different than what the culture is representing and that speaks and points to jesus so i think that's so important yeah i think it's it's really hard um because when you get into christianity people even disagree about what's essential and what's not essential so what i try to do is let's see if how many things we can agree on you know because i think then all of a sudden you feel like you're on the same team more than on opposition so you 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 always start with jesus right son of god holy god holy man savior payment for our sins uh, God's character is nature. He's sovereign. He's good. He's holy. He's just. He's loving. Uh, the Bible is our authority. And we say, okay, so it's like if if someone 
were to try and persecute Christians, we'd be running the same direction, right? We'd be on the same team, team Christian, going away from it. And it's like, okay, we are on the same side. I think that's a, that's like a breath of fresh air, right? It's a relief saying, okay, we're on the same team. Um, but this other thing we disagree about, uh, does it change Jesus? No. Does it change God's character? No. Does it uh, undermine the authority of the Bible? No. We're just coming at one passage from two different angles. That's respectable, and we should be able to hug each other, right? And so that's always what I try to keep in mind is have a conversation where I feel like I can hug at the end because I'm not so attached to the idea that I devalue the person. Um, so I think that's part part of it because in the Bible, we're told to have unity of mind, right? And that has to be unity of the essentials, that we all think the same way. We understand what it's like to be persecuted because we only believe in one way to, to Jesus. There's only one God. Only Jesus can take away your sins. So, you know, those core beliefs draw a deep unity and they have deep consequences that we both have to suffer. And so the more you can show how you have a common struggle, common bond, and uh, you're on the same team, I think it helps get away from the us and them. And it's like, it's a we, but we don't agree on everything. But we do agree on some things. Disagree on some things. But we actually agree on a lot. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for um, sharing those things, um, you guys. I think, yeah, a lot of times just to add to that, you know, that, kind of like you mentioned, Eric, a lot of times people don't necessarily understand what are the essentials versus what are things that are not really essential or not primary issues, you know? And then I think the other thing is a lot of times we we don't understand the other person's point of view. Um, we don't we don't understand fully their interpretation of that passage or interpretation of that view and a lot of times unfortunately we personally are not willing to put in the work to understand those things um, right. and, and we're not willing to put in in the work to deal with some of the 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 harsh or the incorrect feelings and emotions that we're, we're dealing with that in our own minds and our in our own hearts um, towards Absolutely. that person and so really I think a lot of it comes down to um, intentionality with, mm -hmm. with trying to, um, you know, still understand that we can disagree, but there can still be unity and there can still be love and mercy and compassion towards that person. Yeah. So, um, we've talked a lot about how to disagree biblically, um, in this podcast. And, you know, a last question would be, are there some areas that we shouldn't disagree about as Christians? Or in other words, what are the hills to die on? Yeah, I think you have to die on any hill that has to do with Jesus. And let, let me explain that because I think, uh, I think sometimes people think, I don't know about me particularly, but pastors, oh, you're being mean because you called that guy's name out. You know, so when you think of Bethel or you think of Mormons or you think of Muslims, why call that out? It's because they have changed Jesus in one form or another. 
And when you have a different Jesus, you have a different gospel, you have a different salvation. That's worth fighting for. With Bethel, you have Jesus taking on and off his divinity. Well, well, that makes him not God. That makes him just a man. That changes the gospel. Uh, Mormons have Satan and Jesus being brothers. That changes the gospel, right? Muslims have Jesus as a prophet, not the Son of God. That changes the gospel. And so when it, when it changes Jesus, you die on that hill. And what's, what's hard is sometimes the argument looks like it's about uh, a geographical location, or it's about gifts of the Spirit, or it's about uh, whose book was first. And it's like, no, it's about Jesus made a claim that he was the Son of God, that he was the only way to God, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and that he would resurrect from the dead in three days. He made those claims. And they're either yes or no questions. Do you believe these things? Like C.S. Lewis says, liar, lunatic, or Lord, because he really said them. And, and so you have to die on those hills because they're absolutes. They're either yeses or they're noes. The other one I would say is when someone is changing the character of God to make uh, God more like man, and changing man to be more like God, those are hills I die on because uh, when you change God, you basically don't have God at all. When you attack his sovereignty, when you attack his justice, his goodness, uh, you're saying that he can't allow something and still be good. He can't know something and still be good, still be loving, uh, or still be holy. And when you undo the character of God, you've undone God. And so it's on those things uh, I say we stand. God is always good. He's always just. He's always holy. He's always all-knowing. He's always all-powerful. Do not change who he is. He's completely other. He's uncreated. We're created. And so those are hills I'll die on. Um, and there's a lot of hills I won't die on, you know. Uh, to me, there's a difference. When you're a pastor and you have a church, you need to be honest about where you stand and where you're going to teach. But if I'm just encountering another Christian, I don't need to get into everything we disagree about, you know, unless it's on these hills, because now you're saying you're a Christian, but you're not holding Christian doctrine about Jesus, about who God says he is, uh, about God's word. So that those are the ones that I you know, would hold on to. And, and look at how Jesus handles hills. Uh, when Peter tells him, hey, don't, don't talk about leaving us. He says, get behind me, Satan. When Peter attacks Jesus going to the cross, Jesus rebukes him because he's like, no, I'm going to pay for the sins of the world. You don't know what you're talking about. Get behind me. When they at the temple are exchanging money, throws up the table, says, you're making my father's house a dinner robbery. See, look at the things Jesus died on. Then Jesus gets falsely accused of being a criminal. And he says, okay, I see, yeah, you know, I'm the son of God and you want to kill me for it. Okay. See, he didn't fight that. He took that. Right. So you can kind of see where Jesus does fight on some hills. And it usually had to do with the character and nature of his, of his father. And when it went against the will of what God uh, had sent him to do. So that's how I would kind of think through 
the hills I would die on. But again, you don't say, you're such an idiot. How could you believe this? Only someone who's stupid would believe that. You attack people's character and they're not going to listen to you. So you have to attack the idea. You know, how does that make sense? How is Jesus still a savior if he's not divine? If he's only divine and he's not a man, how is man's sin paid for? Just ask the question. What Christian was in? Ask the question, attack the idea, not the person. People get confused all the time. Uh, let's not take it out on them. Let's address the issue so that we can stand on the right hills. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Eric. That's really helpful. I think, yeah, I found it beneficial to just just ask people in a genuine way, like, can you show me from scripture where, where you're drawing that from? And do it, way way, do it in such a way that they genuinely, you know, you're not trying to bash them and imply that they can't defend it from scripture. You're trying to genuinely understand where they're pulling that from scripture. And so it, it's kind of twofold. It, it, one gives them the opportunity to really um, explain their viewpoint from scripture, which ultimately if scripture is absolute truth, then that is what matters most is what the scriptures say. And then at the same time, it should force you to be able to know the scriptures as well. Right. Um, and so it's kind of, it's twofold. Um, so yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, thank you both for answering um, those questions and giving some um, just great input to uh, this topic of me maintaining unity in a divided culture. As we close, is there anything that you guys uh, maybe would like to add to this, the discussion? Uh, I would just say this. Disagreement is healthy, and it doesn't need to be personal. And I think uh, the more we give the world the idea that Christians have to agree on everything, people will think there's no place for them because they're a different thinker. Um, and just kind of show and model how to have a healthy disagreement where you could still hug and not be afraid to have disagreements because people either hide or people lie or they cave to avoid it. And it's like, no, have a healthy disagreement where you talk about the issue. You come to an agreement that you're not going to agree, but you can still be friends and you can still talk and you can still have each other over up to your house. Because if you keep this trajectory, marriage is impossible right? If they keep this, we got to agree on everything. I mean, we can't even agree on what's for dinner. Imagine like it's all over. So we got to model how to disagree in a biblical, compassionate, healthy way. That'd be my biggest plea for our church. Have healthy disagreements. Mm -hmm. Let your kids see how to do this. You don't have to throw a fit. You don't have to name call. You can just talk. Great. What about, uh, what about you, Kristen? Anything you'd like to add? I get excited thinking about that. Um, you know, Eric, when you say model that for your children, um, model the disagreement, absolutely. We, in marriage every day, they see that. But I don't think these times are getting any less confusing. And mm -hmm. I don't think the future is going to be more peaceful or more unified yeah. without Jesus. Amen. And so when we model that we can disagree lovingly, not only mm -hmm. in our families, but I even think finding ways to model that we 
can disagree within our church family that will continue to draw the future generations to stick with the church which yeah. is my great desire that the future generations would see that the family of god is worth sticking with and Amen. the way we disagree and the way we seek to be unified will make all the difference in that i agree great Hey, well, thank you both for coming on the podcast. It was great to hear both of your perspectives. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. You have been listening to the LBC podcast, a podcast of Laurel Glen Bible Church in Bakersfield, California. If you liked listening to this podcast, please share with a friend and hit the subscribe button to stay up to date on all new podcasts. Thank you for listening and God bless you. We will see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Bye.